Welcome to episode 9 of Shellshocked. This week, we'll be talking about twin studies, and later, you'll hear an interview with famed author, psychologist, and twin researcher, Dr. Nancy Siegel. She'll tell us what her research can teach us about what it means to be, well, us. Whether you're a twin or not, this episode should prove doubly interesting. So once again, brace yourselves for Shellshocked. So I have to say, I'm very excited about our topic this week, Marilyn, twin studies. If you're like me, and I think a majority of people, you're fascinated by twins. And as science-minded people like us, I think we're especially interested in what twins have to offer in the way of answering some of the most basic questions about psychology, things like who are we and how did we come to be the individuals we are today? This story has personal relevance to me because I have two nieces who are fraternal twins. Oh, really? Yes, Sophie and Lucy. So I was looking online at some of the research and I ran across an interesting article on the Huffington Post and it lists some little known facts regarding twins. So I want to read through some of these because I found them fascinating. Uh, I think this article mostly addresses identical twins, but um, here's one for instance. Did you know that identical twins don't have identical fingerprints? Really? I thought everything about them was identical. That's what I thought, too, until I read this. And I was kind of embarrassed that I didn't know that. But it turns out that they start out with the same fingerprints. But, and get this, it's a little bit creepy. They touch the amniotic sac and those unique ridges and lines that form on our fingers they change as a result of touching the amniotic sac. And so one twin will have different fingerprints than the other. Wow, I'm a little bit ashamed that I didn't know that that's how fingerprints were made. Yeah, apparently they start out (laughs) identical and then they change. So it's a little creepy, but it's true. (laughs) Very cool. So you can tell you can tell twins apart, huh? Yeah, apparently you can if you have fingerprints, which leads to another article I was reading um, where a researcher was asked about crimes committed by identical twins. And the question, of course, was, how could you tell them apart? How could you determine who committed the crime? And it's actually a more complex question than a lot of people would think. Um, if you get really lucky, then you'll find a fingerprint. And as I said, identical twins have different fingerprints, and so the police may be able to figure out which twin committed the crime. In other cases where there are no fingerprints, you may be able to find DNA. And a lot of people would say, but wait a minute, they're identical twins. How could that help you in your investigation? Well, as it turns out, the older we get, the more our DNA potentially would deviate from our identical twin. And that's because environmental factors will turn on and off certain genes, but it will also cause our DNA to not be copied perfectly. So even though at birth they may have had identical DNA, certainly by adulthood, their DNA won't be exactly the same anymore, and they may be able to determine who did the crime. Fascinating. 
It's incredible. I think we're going to, we're probably going to use that word a lot. I'll, I think I'll so. have to try to find some cinema. <laughs> I'll find some synonyms. It is fascinating. Um, so here's another strange one. And I think we were discussing this earlier before we were recording. It turns out that women who eat a lot of dairy are more prone to conceiving twins. You know, who knew? And I love cheese, but uh, so I guess if I had kids, then maybe that uh, propensity would be there. Yeah, it's still a rarity, a relative rarity that someone will have twins, especially identical twins, unless, of course, IVF is involved, which accounts for the huge increase that we've seen in the past 20 years or so in fraternal twins. But it turns out that according to this uh, research published in the Journal of Reproductive Medicine, women who eat more dairy products may increase their chances of conceiving twins. And the most likely culprit of this is the growth hormone that gets released into the bloodstream of the humans from eating this product from cows. Now, that's not definitive, but it is the most likely culprit. So it's a little bit scary that some of the stuff that's in cattle that we eat their products or eat them gets into our systems and could have that kind of profound effect on us. Yeah. And but I do believe, though, that um, there is also a genetic component to fraternal twins, not to um, identical, but to fraternals. And we still don't know exactly why people have identical twins. Later, I'll discuss this in an interview that I did yesterday with uh, Nancy Siegel, a very well-known psychologist who's been studying twins for over 30 years. But you would think that after all these years of research, they would have figured out the entire process, but it still remains a complete mystery why it is that identical twinning occurs. Yeah, and um, what's fascinating, too, that I read, there's the word again, um, was that uh, the rate for identical twins is um, the same throughout the world. So even though fraternal twin rates change in different uh, places, uh, for identical twins, it's about the same. Yeah. Here's a here's one that completely blew me away. Okay, I can deal with fingerprints, I can deal with the hormone changes <laughs> and all that stuff, but it's possible that twins can have different fathers. What? Okay. Now, hear me out. <laughs> There's only one case of this that's been verified that I was able to find. And so it's a real rarity out of the 7 billion plus people on the planet. There's one case, but it's still possible, as I said. So this was a case back in 2009 in which a woman named Mia Washington gave birth to twins who had different fathers. Said to be a one in a million occurrence. I think that's probably an understatement. But it was verified by a woman named Dr. Hilda Hutcherson. Uh, She's a clinical professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the Columbia University, and she explained how it happened. So normally a woman releases one egg every 28 days or so, but for this woman, she released two. So you're thinking, okay, fraternal twins. Well, they were released at the same time, and within a five-day period, she had sex with two different men, and sperm can remain alive in the reproductive tract for that long. So, one man's sperm went into one egg that she had released that month, another man's sperm went into the other egg, and voila, you have half-siblings. But, so, I mean, what what was it that they looked so different that made them be like, well, do they have different fathers? I mean, because, you know, siblings might not look the same. Yeah, so apparently the reason that they did the testing in the first place was because the father of one of the sons who was with this woman... Uh, became very curious over the fact that the two boys didn't look much alike. 
And so this caused them, by hook and by crook, to do DNA testing, and they learned that actually they were siblings, but only half-siblings. To his credit, however, um, her partner did stay with her, and he considers this child his son just like his biological son, and so uh, last account was that they're still, you know, happily a family. Oh, good. Good. Happy ending. Very happy. But they're the only ones that we know of. So Right. They're the only ones that, that science has actually looked into. Now, of course, there could be others out there. That don't know. Yeah, who knows? Now, here's where it got a little hinky when I was reading this article because I thought, well, now they've just gone off the deep end. The label says some conjoined twins can feel and taste what the other one was. And I thought, hang it up, that's it. Until I realized <laughs> they were talking about conjoined twins. Oh, are, okay, that makes sense. Who are connected to each other at the head. So in this case, these children were connected at the thalamic bridge, the part of the brain that acts like a neural switchboard and filters out most sensory input. But the children were having facial expressions and behaviors that seemed to suggest that they were experiencing each other's uh, taste and smell. For instance, one child um, had some kind of condiment, I'm assuming it was ketchup or something, on her tongue and made an expression like she didn't like it, it was too strong, and the other child started wiping her own tongue, even though the ketchup wasn't on her tongue. Wow. And there was another experience where the television was on, it was angled away from one of the children's faces, but the one that wasn't looking at it was still laughing at what was on the screen, apparently. So they're still conjoined. Yes. They haven't been separated. Okay. Right. All right. That makes more sense. At the time that they were studied, anyway, by this uh, this researcher, they were still conjoined. So so that makes sense to me. If there's if there's neural connection, physical neural connection there, then it makes perfect sense. Of course, what I was assuming they were talking about was this very well known fallacy that. Oh, twins, you know, they're separated by a hundred miles or a thousand miles and they can feel what the other one's feeling and, you know, all that kind of nonsense. Yeah, I, I've i read that, um, you know, if you think about somebody very often, like twins probably do, then it's very likely that, you know, at the moment you're thinking of them, something will happen to them, you know, because you think about them frequently, not because you have this sort of connection. Right. Which um, also brings up the question, um, and I've read um, both sides, and I don't know what you found, um, about whether or not twins actually have this uh, own language. Yeah, I have read that, and I'm convinced that it probably is true, although you kind of have to tweak the word language a little bit. Mm -hmm. I think probably they're able to communicate with each other, and it's verbal communication, and, of course, it disappears by the time they're out of toddlerhood. So, you know, it depends on probably a linguist would take issue with the term language. Language. But yeah, I think there's enough evidence to suggest that because twins play off, or I should say children play off of each other. And twins have especially a close bond. They're the same age. They're with each other almost constantly. And when they begin to communicate with each other, of course, they're going to do this, this sort of sporadic creation of language that only the other one understands. I think they call them autonomous languages. Yeah, because I had read that twins develop language, um, identical twins develop language later, and that some say it's because of this language that they have with each other at first. Right. Well, here's something apropos of nothing. 
that I shouldn't <laughs> care about, but for some reason I do. I was looking up twins, and there was a link that said, here's a list of celebrities who have twins. And I thought, oh, okay. I clicked on it. And then I found myself oddly fascinated by it. I don't know <laughs> why. <laughs> Celebrities but, uh, and twins, two things that, you know, that always turn our eyes. And so put them both yeah. together, even even better. Are, are these identical and fraternal or just identical? Uh, most of them were fraternal. Okay. So the identicals that I were able to find was uh, Mariah Carey and Nick Cannon have a set of identical boys named Monroe and Moroccan. Okay. By the way, brace yourself for some of these names. <laughs> I don't know what's going on with celebrities naming their kids weird stuff, okay, but yeah. it's true. Okay. Julie Bowen, she's the beautiful yeah. blonde woman on Modern Family. Uh huh. She has an identical yeah. twin? She has identical sons, John and Gus. Oh, okay. Okay, kids. And then, of course, Ray Romano from Everybody Loves Raymond. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, he had identical twins on the show as well. And at first, they were named after his real identical twin sons, Greg and Matt. But then he decided that was too creepy. So they renamed the characters on the show. Um, unfortunately, one of them, the actors, uh, I think he was in his mid to late teens. He committed suicide recently. Oh, no. And so that's one of the things that Nancy Siegel has looked into also, which is when uh, someone loses a twin, what is that like? And she said, as you would probably predict, it's a much more profound loss than losing a sibling, which is terrible, but it's right up there with losing a spouse. Mm-hmm. And, and I would said, imagine you know, things like that, like depression and all that kind of stuff, would uh, really runs in these um twins together probably so yeah yeah um here are some of the fraternals celine dion and that's definitely through ivf she's a very um strong proponent of you know using science to uh treat infertility and so she has a set of fraternals named nelson and eddie jennifer lopez has fraternals max Mm -hmm. and emmy a boy and a girl sarah jessica parker has fraternal twins who were born via surrogate she got a lot of shit for that and i think it's wrong um the fact that she got shit for it not the fact that she used a surrogate um marion and tabitha i love the name tabitha because i'm a huge fan of bewitched Angelina Jolie have a whole gaggle of kids, but they also have two fraternal twins of their own, Vivian and Knox. Julia Roberts has fraternals named Phineas and Hazel. Wow. Phineas. Okay. Yeah. She saddled those kids with some old people names. I know. (laughs) I know. And take it from me with Marilyn, which is, uh, it's coming back, but, you know, I do know what it's like. I think Marilyn's a perfectly fine name for your generation. Yeah, you don't see too many before. It's a little bit older. But anyway, Phineas, definitely. Yeah. Well, there's not a lot of Sheldons out there either. True, true. Angela Bassett has two uh, fraternals named Slater and Bronwyn. Uh, Come again? Yeah, Bronwyn. (laughs) B-R-O-N-W-Y-N, Bronwyn. His, okay. Good luck with teachers. <laughs> <laughs> and Patrick Dempsey has a couple of fraternal twins named Sullivan and Darby. Those are the most, you might as well name them Irish and Irish. <laughs> Sullivan Dempsey's me name and Darby <laughs> Dempsey's me brother. <laughs> good accent, good accent. Oh, yeah, it's the most fake Irish accent ever.
Joining me now is Dr. Nancy Siegel. Dr. Siegel is an evolutionary psychologist and behavioral geneticist whose specialty is the study of twins. She's a professor of developmental psychology at California State University, Fullerton, where she's also serving as director of the Twin Studies Center there. Dr. Siegel is the recipient of the 2005 Outstanding Professor of the Year Award, as well as the Award for Distinguished Professor in Humanities and Social Sciences. That same year, she also received the James Shields Award for Lifetime Contributions to Twin Research from the Behavior Genetics Association and International Society for Twin Studies. She's a fellow of the American Psychological Association, the American Psychological Society, and the Western Psychological Association, as well as an inductee to the Collegium of Distinguished Alumni at Boston University. Dr. Siegel is the author of several important books, including Someone Else's Twin, The True Story of Baby Switched at Birth, Entwined Lives, Indivisible by Two, and her most recent work, Born Together, Reared Apart, which details the research done by the landmark Minnesota Twin Study. Dr. Siegel, welcome to Shellshocked. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, you've been studying twins for quite a long time now, about 30 years, right? That's right. And uh, I find them as fascinating now as I did before. So what do you think sparked your interest in twins and the twin experience? Well, that's actually an easy question to answer. What sparked my interest in twins was that I'm born a twin. I'm a fraternal twin. I have a sister who looks and acts nothing like me. And I think that I was always so fascinated by the fact that we grew up together with the same parents, had so many experiences in common, and still ended up being so different in our interests and our friends and our preferences and what we like to do. And so when I got to college and majored in psychology and I discovered the twin literature and how rich and wonderful it was, it just engaged me so much both professionally and personally. And it's, it's been a love affair ever since. Uh, first of all, twins raised together. What's the basic logic? And that is that identical twins share all the genes, fraternals only half. So if we look at identicals and we find that they're more alike in ability, in personality, or in their interests, relative to fraternal twins, and we're talking about large samples here. This tells us that the genes do influence the behavior to some degree. And studying twins raised apart is even a neater design because then there's no chance that the twins could have um, in, in influenced each other. And we know that the correlation between identical twins gives you a pure estimate of genetic influence. So it's a very simple and elegant design, and um, it's it's been used by people in all kinds of fields, not just psychology, but medicine, sociology, economics, things like that. Wow. I don't like to assume that everyone has the same knowledge, so why don't we start out by having you define the word twin and the different types of twins that there are. Sure. Well, twins are individuals who are born at the same time, conceived at the same time, of course, and there are two basic types, the identical and the fraternal. The identical result when a single fertilized egg divides between the first and 14th post-conceptional day to result in two genetically identical individuals, two males or two females, and they represent about one-third of the natural twinning rate. Then you have the fraternal twins that result when a mother releases two separate eggs at the same time and they're separately fertilized by two separate sperm. These twins share half the genes on average by descent, just like ordinary siblings do, and they can be two males, two females, or one of each. And they represent about two-thirds of the natural twinning rate. Although we're starting to see many more fraternals now because of the assisted reproductive technologies, which typically involve the implantation of two or more embryos. 
Is there anything about twins that you think people need to know or that they get wrong in interacting with them? Well, um, for one thing, some people assume that male-female twins can be identical, and that's completely wrong. Uh, some people think that twins skip generations, and they could. Fraternal twins could, but there's no necessary genetic pathway by which that always occurs. Fraternal twins can you know, pop up in, in many families, usually if there's a genetic component to it, but there's no particular path that they follow across generations. And another interesting thing is that identical twins do not share all the genes in common. They Theoretically, they do, but there can be errors in, in copying. There can be um, transcription errors in, in the replication process. And when you see identical twins, they're not exactly the same in every way. There can be subtle environmental differences between them, uh, sometimes differences in facial asymmetries. Sometimes one twin's more outgoing than the other. So it's these differences that are really fascinating to us and really tell us more about human behavior that we can apply at the general population level. I remember as an undergraduate in psychology, my first introduction to twin research was, of course, the famous gem twins. And you talk about them in your book, Born Together, Reared Apart. Can you talk briefly about that particular case and how it was important to the beginning of this sort of research? Oh, sure. The Jim twins, uh, Jim Lewis and Jim Springer, grew up about 30 or 40 miles apart in separate cities in Ohio. They met for the first time at the age of 39 years. And when they got together, there was a lot of media attention because of their similarities. Aside from both being named Jim, they had both married women named Linda and Betty. They both bit their fingernails, had mixed headache syndromes, drove the same types of blue Chevrolets, and, and vacationed in the same three-strip beach of Florida. Uh, and they both enjoyed woodworking. So there were many, many similarities, and that caught the attention of Professor Bouchard at the University of Minnesota. And he thought it would be of great interest to bring the Jim twins in for an assessment, a psychological and medical assessment, and maybe find a few other pairs and publish it as a compendium. But what happened was that the Jims came, and the media really wrote it up. And so before we knew it, there were 15 sets of reared apart twins in the lab, and it seemed like a pity to stop. And so we kept on going, and at the end, at the conclusion of the study, we had 137 sets. Wow. And they started gathering data on this much larger sample of twins oh, who yes. had been raised apart. What were the kinds of tests that they used to collect the data? Yeah, we collected data in virtually every domain of human behavioral and physical development. IQ, special abilities, interests, personality, self-esteem, um, lifestyle, uh, fears and phobias, uh, psychiatric interviews, uh, speed of response. I mean, just there was nothing we didn't know about the twins when they left, except we thought about two things, shoe size and glove size. We didn't wow. have those. <laughs> but other than that, I think we had it all. Wow. We had dental exams, eye exams, chest x-rays. I mean, there was it was a very, very multidisciplinary approach. So everything from the psychological to the physical to the behavioral. Correct. Correct. There's still a lot of data that have not been analyzed, and so we're still getting papers out of that study. Oh, wow. I did not know that. Yes, yes. What do you think twins have to teach us about ourselves and what it means to be an individual? Twins teach us that um, they teach us a lot about how we came to be the way that we are. You know, I think it's very easy for us to assume that we are either outgoing because our parents pushed us that way or we like to study because our mother insisted that we do so. But when you study people intact family members, you cannot dissociate the genes from the environment. You've got to do that with adoption or twin studies. So twin studies tell us that many of our interests, talents, um, abilities, our physical development, even our quirky little habits have a genetic component at some level. 
And in terms of being an individual, you know, many people think that twins are not individuals, but they are. Most identicals will tell me that they have an identity that's with the twin and one apart from the twin. And I can really understand that as a twin myself. Um, I remember that some of the twins, when they first met, were a little bit concerned that they would no longer have a sense of self, but very quickly they learned that they certainly did. Uh, so I guess all of us, what it teaches in general is that all of us are unique takes on the human theme. We share a lot in common with everybody else. Uh, we have more, say, in common with males and females, depending on which sex you are. But we also are unique. It's just that identical twins are more like themselves than anybody else. <laughs> but they certainly feel like individuals, too. So a lot of these people who have been separated at birth, they've lost years or even decades that they could have known each other and shared their lives. And so we tend to think, oh, wow, they're back together. This is all a happy story. But some of these reunions probably aren't all that pleasant in some ways. Is that true? You're right. I would say the vast majority of them are because most of these people have been adoptees and to meet a biological relative in general, but a twin in particular, is really quite an extraordinary event. But there are some cases, in our study there was only one, but I studied some after that, of twins who were switched at birth. And what that means is that a pair of twins was born on the same day or close in time to a single child, and somehow a hospital made a mistake and inadvertently switched one twin with a single. So an unrelated pair grew up together, thinking they were fraternal, and the single twin grew up alone, and it was discovered when somebody confused one for the other. These are not happy reunions, essentially, because lives get totally revamped, and um Mothers and fathers realize they were not raising their own child, and uh, suddenly the switched child realizes that, you know, who am I and where's my family and why did this happen? So it, it becomes a little more difficult to deal with in those particular cases. Uh, but but most reunions are pretty pleasant, and most of the twins do maintain close relations. And it's amazing how well the identical twins especially get along with one another. The fraternal twins do too, but the identicals tend to form a closer relationship. And I think that that also teaches us that the people that we like and enjoy associating with are those with whom we share similar characteristics. So then there's a real basis for a relationship. Do you have a favorite set of twins from all this research? Um, you know, I really don't because the pair of twins is my favorite of the pair that I work with at the moment. But there are a couple that, that are outstanding in my mind. And I guess it's the last pair I studied after I left the Minnesota study. And that would be a pair of British women, um, Elizabeth Hamill and Anne Hunt, who met for the first time at the age of 78. And I reunited them here on the campus of California, State University, Fullerton. And they're now in the Guinness Book of Records as being the world's longest separated pair of twins. And it was particularly poignant for me because they had been separated so long. And it was great that they got to meet because, unfortunately, Elizabeth passed away not long ago. And at least Anne got to meet her sister after all those years. So that that's a really special pair in my mind. But if I had to think about some others... Um, Jack and Oscar, one raised Jewish, one raised Catholic in Nazi Germany. They had an extraordinary background. Despite that, they had a lot of similarities. Uh, the two twin firemen who ended up uh, in New Jersey in different fire stations, but both were volunteer firemen. I mean, that was extraordinary, too, which tells us that our choice of occupation, our risk-taking behaviors also have genetic components to them. So there are some outstanding pairs, but I have to say, Sheldon, that they're really all outstanding. They're all these wonderfully informative takes on human behavior. People generally accept without questioning that biological traits are driven by genes or maybe preferences for food or hobbies and things like that. But don't you think that when it becomes the more personal aspects of our lives, like our sexuality or something like that, that's when we sort of get into this gray area. What are researchers finding when things like sexual orientation or gender identity come into twin studies? Mm -hmm. Well, with sexual orientation, there is a genetic component to it. 
years ago, say in the 80s and 90s, it was thought that it was about 50%. But we're learning it's a little bit lower now that we have better methods and do anonymous surveys with larger samples. The best survey I've seen lately comes out of the Scandinavian countries, and it showed that that sexual orientation for males was about 30% and for females about 18%. Now, when it comes to gender identity, my colleague, Dr. Milton Diamond at the University of Hawaii, has been conducting studies on transgender twins, and he finds a genetic component there, too. The exact uh, percentage, I, I don't recall off the top of my head, but he does find a stronger genetic component in males than in females. That is, males changing to female as opposed to female changing to male. And that squares with the sexual orientation findings. So, um, I think, though, people may be less likely to agree about this, but when you ask the twins themselves, um, they really find it as genetic. Uh, on the other hand, um, when I talk to – I have studied some case studies of transgender twins where one twin uh, changed gender and the other did not. And there, it, it is probably some sort of an environmental effect, either pre, probably prenatally because the twin who switched sex uh, really felt that they were born into the wrong sex at a very early age. So it was nothing that the parents did. Uh, some parents blame themselves, I know, but really, um, I always tell parents that you don't bring up your children, they bring up you. And <laughs> if you treat them a certain way, it's because you're responding to their behaviors, you're not creating them. Well, this is just fascinating research. You say that you're working on a, a new book right now. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, my new book, Misconceptions, uh, will be written over the next year, and it will be a book about all the misinformation and misconceptions that are out there about twins. I mentioned a few already. Um, and I hope to describe those and to really uh, tell people what the truth is. Uh, one of the most fascinating misconceptions is about identical twins. Uh, we really don't know what causes identical twins, and some people think that later splitting is associated with single placentas, and it makes a lot of biological sense, but no one's ever really witnessed that. And there's a couple of papers that talk about that, so I'm going to be talking about things like that. And I'm also hoping to write another book on another topic, but since the contract is, is being negotiated, well, since the, the proposal is being negotiated right now, I, I guess I'm not going to talk about it. <laughs> okay. And where can people go to learn more about you and your work and find information about your books and such? Great. Well, I'm a professor at California State University, Fullerton, and I have a, a website that people can visit. It's org. That's drnancysegaltwins.org. And my books are up there. My studies are up there. I have a number of ongoing studies that people are invited to take part in. And I'd just love to hear from anybody who's interested. Great. Well, thanks again for being on the show. My pleasure, Sheldon. The Science Report. On February 8, 1908, a set of identical twins was born to Kate Skinner of Brighton, England. Kate, an unmarried barmaid, had great difficulty during the labor and came very close to dying. The reason for these complications became clear once the girls were born. She had given birth to conjoined twins. The woman assisting with the childbirth was Kate's employer, one Mary Hilton, owner and proprietor of the Evening Star Pub in downtown Brighton, who immediately saw the commercial value of these unusual little girls. Essentially abandoned by their birth mother, the infants soon became the virtual property of Miss Hilton and her husband. 
The pair began displaying them in a back room for customers to view, poke, and prod almost immediately after their birth. Thus began the first of many exploitations of Daisy and Violet, who would soon rise to international fame as the Hilton sisters. Although the small area of skin and bone that held the girls firmly together at the hip could easily be dealt with surgically today, a century ago such an operation would have been much more dangerous. It was decided within months of their birth that such a procedure was not in their best interest, and by age three, the United Twins, as they would be called in advertisements and flyers, were traveling through Germany and Austria in true sideshow manner. Their notoriety even led them to a 1926 stage show with the then-young vaudevillian Bob Hope, who would later become one of the most successful entertainers of the 20th century. By now, the girls were accomplished dancers, played instruments, and could sing well enough to accompany their routines, giving them a hook that allowed audiences to rationalize their desire to see their anatomical abnormality. Unfortunately, despite the substantial revenues being earned by their careers, Daisy and Violet saw none of it, which by 1920 was averaging the equivalent of nearly $70,000 a week. Hilton and her husband kept 100% of the proceeds, and were careful to keep the girls completely in the dark about how much they were actually pulling in. She was not only strict, barring the girls from any social activities and banning visitation by outsiders, but she was also physically abusive, always careful to strike the girls in places that wouldn't leave bruising the audiences might see. When Mary Hilton died, the girls were essentially inherited by her adult daughter Edith and Edith's husband, Meyer Myers. Under their guardianship, the abuses continued, and the girls' careers faltered for the first time. As small children, their inability to dance, sing, or play instruments at a professional level could be overlooked, but as adults, their amateurish act seemed forced and a bit sad. Ticket sales dwindled, and as they did, the tensions at home rose, along with the abuse. In a chance meeting with Harry Houdini, the famous magician was able to pull the girls aside for a few minutes out of earshot. He advised them to make attempts to learn as much as they could about their careers. He pointed out that newspapers were a great source of this information, and that they might be able to determine how much their handlers were actually earning, and possibly even devise a way to get out from under their influence. Only a few years after this conversation, the sisters got that chance. In December of 1930, the Hilton sisters found themselves in the headlines again. This time, however, it wasn't their act that was drawing attention, but a divorce suit in which they featured prominently. Partly in an attempt to educate themselves about their own professional careers, the sisters had befriended their advance agent, William Oliver. Mr. Oliver's wife later became suspicious of the relationship with the girls and used a promotional postcard signed by them, With Love, not only to sue Oliver for divorce, but also to sue the twins for $250,000 in damages, several million in today's dollars. Oddly enough, it was this frivolous lawsuit that would prove the catalyst for the girls' freedom. In a meeting with their lawyer, Martin J. Arnold, in San Antonio, Texas, their abusive handlers left the room momentarily, and the girls took this opportunity to confide in him that they were living under terribly abusive conditions and wanted out. About a year later, with Mr. Arnold's help, they finally won their freedom. 
Unfortunately, by then, most of the money was gone. They received $100,000, about $1.4 in today's money. But more importantly, their 21 years in virtual slavery was finally over. Now living on their own, and with no life experience and nobody to guide them, the girls soon found that lavish parties, spending sprees, and gifts to fly-by-night friends, coupled with little regular income, had bankrupted them. After a short career in television and a small but memorable part in the feature film Freaks, as well as a somewhat fictionalized version of their own life story in the film Chain for Life, which flopped at the box office, not to mention two failed publicity marriages, one to an openly gay man, the popularity of the Hilton sisters had essentially run its course. By the early 1960s, the twins found themselves abandoned by their manager in a North Carolina drive-in theater where they were making an appearance. With no transportation and no money, they simply wandered the streets in search of employment. Finally, a kindly grocery store clerk agreed to employ them. After little attention was given to their effort to draw in a crowd as a conjoint twin act, they eventually signed on as clerks, with Daisy pointing out to the proprietor that it was just good business sense because he'd be getting two workers for the price of one. Although they never again achieved fame, Daisy and Violet Hilton lived out the next seven years of their life in that North Carolina town, with friends, a job, and most importantly the freedom to live their lives as they saw fit. On January 4, 1969, the police were sent to check on the Hiltons who had uncharacteristically not shown up for their shift at the store. The sisters were found dead in their home, one month before their 61st birthday. Daisy had contracted the Hong Kong flu and died. Amazingly, the official report states that Violet lived for another several days. Their bodies are interred at Forest Lawn West Cemetery in Charlotte, North Carolina. Today, a small handful of conjoined twins around the world live much more normal and carefree lives than the Hiltons ever did. Gone are the sideshows and the entertainment exploitation machine that would be their fate in previous generations. One such example is Abby and Brittany Hensel, whose reality show Abby and Brittany on the Learning Channel showcases their relatively normal lives as two teenage girls growing up in a small town in Minnesota. The girls are now 25 years old and haven't let their shared body slow them down or stop them from enjoying life. Although they essentially share a single body, making them much more conjoined than the Hiltons were, they've defied most predictions and learned to walk, ride a bike, and even to drive, with each receiving a separate driver's license from the state. In 2012, they each received a Bachelor of Arts degree from Bethel University in Arden Hills, Minnesota, having majored in education, proving that, although we have a long way to go before the sorts of differences exhibited by conjoined twins are greeted completely without judgment, we have come a long way indeed. Now here's something we hope you'll really like. Hi, this is Marilyn, and this is The Good News. This week's story is about Anaïs Bordier and Samantha Futterman, two girls that, when you see them, have the same laugh and the same freckled cheeks. 
They wear their hair the same way, and they say they have since they were babies. They share a hatred of cooked carrots, a love of the same color nail polish, and the need to sleep 10 hours a day. The pair tease, poke, and prod each other like they've grown up together. But they didn't. Neither woman knew she had an identical twin sister until less than two years ago. That's where the power of the internet, a lot of luck, and a series of what-ifs enter the picture. The story starts with Bordier, who grew up in Paris. She recently graduated from Central St. Martin's College of Arts and Design in London with a degree in fashion design. Currently, she lives in Paris, where she is working as a leather goods designer for Gerard Durrell. On a Saturday in December 2012, while she was on a bus, a friend sent her a screenshot of a YouTube video featuring Futterman, who is an actress. Futterman's credits include roles in the films Memoirs of a Geisha and 21 and Over, and the television series Suburgatory, The Big C, and Up All Night, among others. Bordier automatically started thinking that someone had posted a video of her on YouTube. The resemblance was uncanny. When she got home, she looked again and realized it wasn't her, but a girl who looked exactly like her who lived in the United States. She looked for credits on the video to find the woman's name, but couldn't find anything, so she dropped the matter. That was until the same friend who sent her the screenshot said he saw the girl from the video in a movie trailer, also on YouTube, about a month later. Bordier's instincts kicked into overdrive. She learned Futterman's name and discovered they share a birthday and were both adopted in South Korea. She stalked her a little bit more, learned that she was actually born in the same port city in Korea, and started looking through all her pictures. So what did she find out about her? Well, Futterman is a Korean-American adoptee who was born in Busan, South Korea. She was adopted by a loving family in Verona, New Jersey, through Spence Shapen Adoption Services and the Social Welfare Society. She was raised with two older brothers, her parents' biological sons, and a half-brother from her father's previous marriage. Futterman began performing during her childhood and continued to pursue her talents while attending high school at the Professional Performing Arts School in New York City and eventually graduating with a BFA in theater arts from Boston University. In 2011, she moved to L.A. to further her acting career. After finding all this out, Bordier finally got up her nerve and decided to contact Futterman via Facebook, sending her a friend request and a message. The similarities between her story and the film The Parent Trap, featuring Lindsay Lohan in the most recent version, were not lost on Bordier. She wrote in her message to Futterman, I don't want to be too Lindsay Lohan. Well, but how to put it? I was wondering where you were born. Futterman at first didn't know what to make of Bordier's friend request and message. It's pretty strange to get a message from yourself on Facebook, she said. It's a really weird experience. It took her a few days to respond. She thought, Wow, this could actually be true, Futterman said. The first time they talked on Skype, they were supposed to chat for 90 minutes, but ended up talking for three hours, a conversation that proved to be life-changing. For Bordier, an only child, discovering she had a sister was amazing, but realizing that she had a twin was even crazier because they had so much in common. Like many twins, Bordier said that they have a very strong bond that they can't actually explain, but they understand each other without even really talking. They understood each other right away. But connecting on the internet was one thing. Meeting in person was still really scary, she said. They planned to meet in person for the first time in London. They each chronicle their reunion in alternating chapters in their book, Separated at Birth, a true love story of twin sisters reunited. 
Because of the actor and director in Futterman, she immediately began to chronicle this amazing story with video as well. The reunion is a part of a documentary, Twinsters, which they are producing and hope to release next year. Finally, on May 13, 2013, Futterman flew to London to meet her twin sister. She had spent the last two months getting the funding together for Twinsters, and she had timed her visit to Bordier's graduating fashion show. She drove to Bordier's flat with the documentary crew, family, and friends, all acting as buffers. When she opened the door and entered the room, the two girls stood apart, silent, staring at each other. Someone yelled at them to hug, but neither girl could move. It was very strange, Bordier says, physically very strange. I would describe it as opposing magnets attracting each other. It's like seeing a mirror that doesn't react the way it should. She crossed the room and poked Futterman in the forehead. Futterman burst into laughter. She wasn't that surprised. In the weeks since she and her sister had made contact, she had been working with this week's guest, Dr. Nancy Siegel. She had seen videos of other long-lost twins reunited, and poking is commonplace. It's a safe distance to be away from someone, but confirm that they're real. After the reunion, the entire group went out to lunch, then left the sisters alone. They went back to the flat to take a nap, sleeping side by side. Maybe this was our way of resuming our story where it started, twins in the womb, Futterman writes. We were resuming our life together, waking up with no fear of ever being separated again. That night, they got the results of their DNA test, and to no one's surprise, they were in fact identical twins. It was Siegel who delivered the news. Bordier and Futterman have each undergone testing by Siegel, and even they were stunned by their similarities. It tells you a lot about human nature, Futterman says. I thought everything is nurture, but a lot of it is nature. All of our cognitive abilities are exactly the same. When you look at the data, they are parallel. The support that they have received as their story has gotten national attention and the interest they have had from other adoptees and twins have motivated them to try to raise awareness and provide resources for international adoptions. It inspired us to become something bigger than just ourselves and to share our story for a reason, Futterman said. She and Bordier have teamed up with Futterman's friend, fellow actress Jenna Oskowich. Oskowich is also a Korean-American adoptee from Seoul, South Korea, who was adopted at three months old. She grew up in East Meadow, New York, with her parents Brad and Judy Oskowich and an older brother Greg. As a child, Jenna worked in the entertainment industry, acting in commercials, Broadway, and television. After performing in Broadway's Spring Awakening, Jenna landed a role on the hit show Glee in 2008 and moved to L.A. to pursue her dreams in television and film. In 2014, Jenna was approached by Futterman with her amazing story on her own adoption. Knowing that not all adoptees had the same comfortable experience as herself and the sisters, the women felt compelled to take action by creating an inspiring resource for other adoptees so they know they are not alone, and Kindred was born. Kindred's initiative is to provide international and domestic adoptees and their families, both adoptive and biological, with services such as travel, translation, and support for those who wish to reunite. They also provide easily accessible hotlines, introduction to art and encouragement of artistic expression, and programs set up in native countries to aid orphans living within the foster care and government systems. No matter how big or small the need, the Foundation's goal is to aid adoptees and their families in finding stability and happiness. 
Both women say their own parents were delighted with the news, although they were upset initially since neither set of parents knew the girls had a twin. Their adoption papers listed their births as a single birth. Of course, my mom was very protective, Futterman said. We would have taken both of you when they felt that we were missing out on growing up together. Not much is known about adoption practices in South Korea in the 80s, but single mothers there face a stigma and will disappear for months to birth houses where they hide until they give up their babies for adoption. Futterman had immediately gotten in touch with the agency in New York that brokered her adoption. While she and Bordier waited for the results of their DNA test, she learned that the equivalent of her birth mother's social security number had also appeared on Bordier's papers, and that they had been both born at the same clinic in the city of Busan. The clinic had long since closed, and the doctor who delivered them had passed away. A caseworker contacted the woman listed as the biological mother. She denied ever having given birth to them. Bordier doesn't think about it that much. She says, I wasn't disappointed, but I wasn't relieved either. I have no idea who she is or what she does. I put it aside and we'll see what happens in the future. Maybe she'll contact us. Maybe she never will. Futterman, however, thinks about her birth mother often. It's a bit overwhelming to hear that someone you think you might love wouldn't be reciprocating. I also feel an immense sadness for her, that she would feel so much guilt or sadness or pain that she would have to deny us. My sister and I do love our birth mother. She gave us life. But she adds, if we've learned anything in this story is that things will happen as they should. And if one day she wants to reach out to us, then we're here and we're willing and we're ready. Though the women still live halfway around the world from each other, Bordier in Paris and Futterman in Los Angeles, they text multiple times every day about the most mundane of things. And they hope someday to live together in the same city. They may have been torn apart as babies, but they say they are now forever bonded. We're not worried about being separated again, Futterman said. Ours is a love story, but it's a family love story. This is Marilyn, and this has been The Good News. Well, everybody, that's it for this week. Thanks to everyone who's friended us on Facebook, subscribed on iTunes or Stitcher, and especially to those of you who've helped spread the word about our podcast. By the way, Marilyn and I will be at the amazing meeting later this month in Las Vegas, Nevada. So if you see us there, be sure and drop by to say hello and maybe tell us what you think of the show. And speaking of feedback, we now have an exciting new way for you to become part of the show. Visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash shellshockedpodcast and click on the link called SpeakPipe. It's a free service that allows listeners to record themselves asking questions, giving suggestions for future episodes, or saying just about anything they want. Marilyn and I would love to hear from all of you, even if it's just to say hello. So get yourself into that speak pipe and speak away. We might even include your recording in a future episode of Shellshocked. Once again, thanks for listening, and be sure to tune in next week. Until then, you've been Shellshocked.